Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ese balón para Tomiyasu, Tomiyasu deja bien para Havertz, Havertz controla, se le para Martinelli, gol, 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 pero sea quien sea, el Arsenal en el 86 marca el que puede ser el gol partita. Arsenal 1, Martinelli, Manchester City 0. Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arsecast Extra as always with James from Gunner Blog. James! Goodly morning, 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 oh, oh, goodly morning. Goodly morning, the goodliest morning you can have. <laughs> Pulling out the big guns today. A fusion of two, two goodly morning based classics there. Yeah, I mean, it is a goodly morning. There's oh, no arguing against that. One of the goodliest. One of the goodliest. Uh, how are you today? I'm good. I'm feeling, you know, happy. I think uh, we've been through the ringer a few times at Manchester City. And there was very much a sense of... People asked me, actually, before this game, how are you feeling about it? I think mm. Cl- Clive, asked, Clive sent me a text. and said, how, how are you feeling about this one? And I was like, I think we can do it. Mm-hmm. I think we can do it. And that was in my mind... Pretty much all the way through the build-up to this one, even on the arses yesterday, I predicted a 1-0 win to Arsenal. I was just feeling it. So to see it um, transpire that way was obviously very pleasing. And just finally, 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 at last, beating Manchester City in the Premier League, it's long overdue. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling very, very pleased about the whole thing. Yeah. And we were definitely due it. Weren't we? I mean, wow. And we, we'd had sort of, we'd got closer maybe mm. in recent years and had a couple of near misses or games where things didn't quite go our way or we let ourselves down with mistakes. I was the same as you. It's easy to say now, but I, I was pretty optimistic about this one. Um, you know, obviously they were missing two really big players uh, in Kevin De Bruyne and Rodri. Uh, and obviously Erling Haaland didn't play either, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> I certainly didn't see him on the pitch. So, uh, you know, we had that in our favour. But then 
I did notice at kickoff or just before kickoff when the lineup was announced, there was a lot of anxiety about our own lineup, right? Because maybe some of the players we hoped might be available, might be starting, weren't there. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest about this. Arsenal could be playing a team of school children <laughs> and people would still have anxiety about the the lineup. There would be that hour-long debate between the lineup being posted and kickoff where everyone's going, ah, fuck, what sort of a team is this? You know, but yeah. uh, I, I think yesterday maybe it felt a bit more exaggerated or a bit more acute because of the expectation that we were going to see Bukayo Saka. Like, I've been really doubtful about him all week, of course. Um, and I'm glad in a way that the decision was made for the benefit of the player and we came out on top in the game as well. You know, I think it's, it's a win-win sort of situation. Obviously, you don't want him to be injured, but then I did I did just have some doubts about whether risking him for this one game might be a bad idea in the longer term, you know? Uh, but it was being reported before the game that, that Saka was going to be fit and Saka was going to play because if he's fit, he's going to play. We all know that. And then, and then the news came that, that he wasn't going to be there. And, you know, there were some options to Mikel Arteta in terms of how he dealt with that. Jesus wide in the Saka position seemed like the, the most obvious one to me. Um, then it was a sort of toss-up, wasn't it, between Havertz and, and Eddie as as the centre forward. What I thought was quite interesting about this game, um, when we were talking about it on the preview podcast uh, with Lewis on, on Friday, it was like, well, if Partey is fit, I think that the Partey-Rice-Odegaard midfield is what I would go with in this game to sort of make ourselves as strong as possible in the absence of Rodri from the Man City midfield. But if Partey wasn't fit to start, I was okay with Jorginho coming into the team as well because I think in these games that experience, his big game uh, ability uh, and the fact that he's been there, done that and worn that t-shirt so many times for various clubs and country. I, I thought that was a really interesting uh, selection in midfield. And I know it gave people a bit of anxiety because they're like, well, we saw what happened against Spurs. But I, I think it was really important to be able to control the game and his presence, if Partey's not 100% fit to start, made all kinds of sense to me. Yeah, and the likelihood was always going to be they were going to share the game in some fashion. Uh, you know, Partey hadn't got off the bench mm. in France in midweek. And I think, in my mind, I always felt if he was going to start this one, he probably needed to. Uh, or it probably would have been an indicator that he was ready. Um Jorginho against Man City makes a ton of sense. And I think one of his first starts after joining us was the home game against City. And he acquitted himself pretty well on that occasion. I just think it suits him. And so consequently, I didn't have a great deal of anxiety about that. I was a bit surprised about Saka. Uh, you know, when a player starts, what is it, 86, 87 Premier League games mm. in a row, um, it's always a surprise when they eventually miss out. But I, we, I'm with you. I think it's a great outcome that he was rested or left, not rested, left out, let's say, not mm. rushed back and Arsenal still won. I think that could be a, a really big moment for the team to sort of win without him and know that that's possible. Um, Do you think it's a moment I, for Mikel Arteta as well? I think so. I think, I think it could well be. I think Jesus starting at right wing, I don't know if he's ever done it from the start. At Arsenal, he's started a few games on the left recently with Martinelli being out. I can't remember one where he started on the right, but I'm happy to stand corrected if uh, 
one of the listeners does. And it's a position that I think he can be really effective in. I've long said I think he's our best alternative to Pukai Saka in that role. And I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised about Eddie getting the nod. You know, when the big games have come this season, Eddie has started a lot of them. And, you know, there have been injuries that have contributed to that. We Mm. haven't seen the front three of Martinelli, Saka and Jesus together a great deal. But... When one of them has been absent, invariably it's been Eddie who's who's made the step up. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, I mean, I think that that whole situation or that decision is one that might be a debate for another day because um, you know there's a lot to parse about the the centre forward position and and where we go and all the rest of it. But I don't yeah. know that it's necessarily relevant or suitable for today because we've got so much other stuff to talk about. And I think. This was a really, in uh, stepping back, looking at it objectively, cold light of day, this was a really, really interesting Arsenal performance. I think it was a really interesting game. There were shades of the community shield, you know, in the way that we not let City have the ball, but when City had the ball, just how organized and disciplined Arsenal's shape was, and it went some way to negating the quality that they have, you know, and there's no, even without Rodri, even without De Bruyne, you know, they've still got Bernardo Silva, they've got Erling Haaland, they've got uh, Julian Alvarez, you know, they've got a, a ton of really, really good attacking players. And I think the overall Arsenal performance was really, really good. However, there are maybe turning points in games or there are moments in games like this where things maybe have to go your way a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And early on, I think we probably got away with one. Um, there was a sort of weird passage of play where Raya, who, you know, and we'll talk about him, I'm sure, um, rather than play a pass out wide to Gabriel, tried to play a pass into midfield. It didn't connect. I think Declan Rice then sort of clunked the ball straight out of play for a city throw. They ended up with a corner. Rice then cleared off the line and Nathan Ake uh, blazed over under some pressure from from William Saliba. But those were moments where, you know, early on, the, the, the vulnerability maybe that's been present in, in, in our play was evident. And we kind of got away with that a bit before we then uh, started to impose our, our control over City's attack. Yeah, it was a big miss from Nathan Ake, but don't worry. He found his finishing touch at that end <laughs> by full time. He put things right. You know? uh, <laughs> it, it was a shaky start. I don't think there's any getting away from that. And they should have scored, really. I mean, that was a very good chance, I thought, for Ake. And mm. a, a good clearance from Rice as well. Um, I think there was a bit of uh, nerves at the back for Arsenal with the playing out. Um, in fairness, I think playing out from the back, playing a short passing game or a mid passing game against a team as good in the press as Man City is about the most daunting thing you can do in the Premier League. Mm. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot of nerve to persist with that, um, which, we, which we did. I, I think probably we should talk about David Ryer's start to the game uh-huh. because it certainly, I was in the ground, I was in the North Bank, I was behind that goal. And I think uh, his mm, his slightly less comfortable moments on the ball and the sort of combined anxiety that fans bring into a Man City game led to quite a tense 
atmosphere in mm. that opening period. Yeah, I was going to ask you what it was like in the ground because, you know, certainly TV drives a particular narrative. And when a goalkeeper misplaces a couple of passes, you know, particularly when there's a spotlight on that goalkeeper because this is his his uh, one of his key strengths, right? So they were talking about this a lot on the TV. And Gary Neville was basically saying, well, you know, you've got to keep the ball away from the goalkeeper. But that's not what the manager wants. It's not what he wants the team to do. It's not what he wants the goalkeeper to do. He wants to play in a very specific way. And you could sense it, though, from the crowd that when Raya got the ball, there were a couple of moments in that maybe opening 20 minutes where, you know... (sighs) he didn't move it quickly enough or he took the wrong option. And there was a moment when uh, he took a touch a bit slow, Julian Alvarez, you know, blocked the clearance and it went into the side netting. Another day that goes inside the post. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting at home and I'm doing the live blog and I'm thinking, you know, I've heard Mikel Arteta talk very openly about how he might substitute a goalkeeper one day. And I did wonder if this might be that day, you know, <laughs> yeah. honestly, because, you know, and, and I'm not, um, I'm not, uh, don't want to be overcritical of, of Raya or anything like that, but it was a really, really shaky opening 20 minutes. And then there was the, the, the fact that he was doing, as Arteta explained afterwards, he was doing exactly what the manager wanted him to do by standing on the ball and just controlling it and waiting for City to engage before he made a pass, before we try and play it out from the back, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think, did that add to the nervousness in the ground as well? Because people were sort of like, oh, what's he doing? Uh, you know, and I think there was an understanding or there must have been an understanding that like, this is, this is his job. This is what he is being told to do. At the same time, we're nervous because we've seen him, uh, you know, be a, a bit less than accurate in those opening 20 minutes. Yeah, definitely. That was my impression in the ground that it was kind of feeding itself. And, and, and I also think... Um, Listen, I can't speak for everyone, but I think maybe that home crowd's affection for Aaron Ramsdale is kind of part of some of that anxiety and Mm -hmm. some of that frustration with David Raya. And that's where I think this situation with the two goalkeepers right now is sort of not massively healthy for either because whoever plays, Mm. if there are any moments of hesitation or uh, uncertainty, you know, it's not just the cameras who are cutting to the guy on the bench. It's 57,000 heads in the stadium mm. turning to the guy on the bench as well. Um, and, and I think to offer Ryan some mitigation, playing against City's press as a goalkeeper is extremely difficult. When Aaron Ramsdale was misplacing passes, I would have said the same thing. Mm. You know, when an outfield player misplaces a pass, we probably, nine times out of 10, never even think about it again. When a goalkeeper does it, it stays in your mind. And and granted, the risk is greater, but, you know, I, I think we have to give them some credit. We ask a lot of these goalkeepers um, and in fairness to them, you know, they they have a lot to tackle in that particular instance. Mm. I also think how many games of this size has David Raya played in? That in is, career? yeah, I mean, we had a, there was a question on the the Discord, I think, if I can find it, that I'd, pulled out um but basically asking that like is this not the biggest game of of raya's career let me it see. is it uh, is yeah here it is it's from oh gosh uh no i can't find it 
Um, I apologize to whoever it was that asked that question, but it was basically that. Like, is there something in the, you know, in the idea that this would be the biggest game that Raya has played in so far in in his career? And he's played I, high stakes games, playoff finals, sure. and things like that. But it's know, from the- Jeff TNUSA. Uh, did, did some of the nerves that we may be seeing from Ryan spring from the idea these matches Champions League North London Derby Man City have been the highest profile matches he's ever played was that an under discussed component of the decision to slide him in ahead of, of Ramsdale maybe and I think what's interesting is this situation and we, we probably shouldn't spend too long on it because it's you know it's not the headline coming out of the game no no it's um, what I was going to say was we've thought about it a lot from an emotional perspective, kind of from Ramsdale's perspective, you know, what does it feel like for him mm. uh, to have Raya come in, be signed, take his place. But I think we've got to flip it as well and think for David Raya, you know, he's come into the club. He knows Aaron Ramsdale is loved by the fans. He knows there's an alternative to him on the bench that brings its own pressures mm-hmm. and its own demands. And I think it would be <laughs> sort of superhuman if he didn't feel that in some respect. Um, and the thing is, you know, where where we end up here is Mikel Arteta's press conference where he comes out really strongly and kind of goes into bat for his man, I felt, in that press conference. He's got big ones. He's That's got right. big ones. He went big on his praise of David Ryan. And I think... Um, I understand why, because Raya committed to and kept playing the game that Arteta wants, even when, mm. you know, in the early period, he was struggling. Um, and, and I think actually Arteta's post-match comments, I don't think they should whitewash the performance entirely. Like, I think it would sort of be gaslighting to suggest he was just brilliant throughout. He definitely had nervy moments in those opening minutes. And I think he grew into the game massively. But I think the strength with which Arteta came out and kind of defended him, I think shows you where David Raya is in his thoughts at the moment. And, you know, we said at the end of this little run of games, the international break, I think we'll have a clear uh, idea of what the hierarchy is among the goalkeepers. I think it's very clear at this point. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, I also agree that he grew into the game. You know, even after the Alvarez one, there was a pass to Rice that wasn't good. But he began to uh, find his range uh, and find his passing range. And I think it can be tough. Like, footballers are human. They get nervous. Did you listen to the Thierry Henry interview on the Gary Lineker podcast? Not yet, actually, but I've heard it's very good. Yeah, it is good. But even he, even the the, the great Thierry Henry spoke about pre-game moments where he was, I think the phrase he said, I was absolutely shitting myself, mm-hmm. you know, and this Thierry Henry we're talking about. And like you say, there's a lot of factors at play in this one. Uh, the Ramsdale situation, the spotlight on Raya, the fact that it's Manchester City, the fact that they are very, very difficult to play against anyway. And the 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 simple reality that if you do misplace a pass as a goalkeeper, it is going to put your team under a lot more pressure than if Eddie and Ketty misplaces a pass high up the field. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So all of those things. And look, fair play to him. He he got it together and I think he 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 grew into the game well. And I think Arteta will prize that above all else. The fact that he stuck at it, he stuck at the plan, uh, mm. I think will be, yeah, 
that's the reason that he he went so strong as he did in the press conference. I think that's integral for him. Not a game of many chances, it's fair to say. I think uh, our first attempt on goal came from Eddie near the half hour mark. But the main talking point, of course, of the, the first half is Mateo Kovacic, Michael Oliver. I mean, it has been a really long time since I was as angry about a refereeing decision. Uh, normally you kind of go, Jesus, you know, and you can sort of compartmentalize it in a way because, you know, these things happen with a frequency that, that sort of inures you to some of the, the worst of the officiating. But I think Kovacic was extremely lucky to only get a yellow card for the first challenge. And for the life of me, I do not understand how he didn't get a second yellow for the foul on Declan Rice. It is unbelievable from a referee who, as many people have pointed out, sent Gabriel Martinelli off for two trifling offences in eight seconds in one game, in the one action, like an unprecedented red card that we have never, ever, ever, ever seen again in this league. And the the speed with which he waved away the second challenge, I just don't get it. I just do not get it. He didn't even give himself a chance to think. It was out- it, un- just outrageously bad. As you'll all know, listening, when you watch a lot of football games, there are certain things that sort of are a given, you know, where you just know, well, that's a booking. Like yeah. I think Jorginho's booking, for example, um, which he managed very well, mm-hmm. uh, having picked up a yellow card early on. It's one of those where you kind of shrug because as soon as that foul is committed in that position, you know that's a yellow card. And for a player on a yellow card to go in for the tackle that Kovacic did, you almost could have, you know, gone and made a cup of tea at that point because you're like, well, a red, a red card's coming out. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a little break in the game. Um, in fact, I know someone <laughs> who, with the first foul that he made, went into the concourse and uh, watched the replay and then assumed, oh, well, having seen the replay, well, that will definitely be a red and went off to the loo. He couldn't believe it when he came out, he was still on a yellow. <laughs> um, he did enough to earn sort of 1.5 red cards in the game. Mm. I think. His expected reds was 1.5 <laughs> and it ended up with zero. Truly like staggering officiating, you know. I, I was sort of, I wasn't angry. My reaction was more one of like complete consternation like confusion what rule set are we playing by today i mean I i'm i'm sorry i was angry i was genuinely yeah. fuming sitting on my couch and you know i can i can sort of live with i can give out about refereeing decisions but i can kind of live with most of them but this was you know we talked about it last week didn't we where things uh can potentially give weight to those who like conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is, that's, that's exactly the kind of decision from a referee who was, you know, being paid to referee in the UAE who owned Manchester city just a few weeks ago, nice little moonlighting gig. Maybe you didn't want to upset anyone. You know, that's the kind of stuff there that your brain goes there. Why doesn't it, you know, th- those connections are clear and obvious to use the parlance of, of refereeing, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, 60,000 Arsenal fans were singing how much are they paying you. So, well, um, 
I'm not sure it's so much conspiracy theory. It's just like a sort of general question at that point in time. Yeah. Um, it, it was staggering. I, I do, if I had to kind of try and interpret it another way, I wondered if it sort of had the whiff of a, a pre-match directive of let's keep 11 and be 11. You know what I mean? That, that's how I but, felt. Yeah, but, yeah, but even if that's what it was, and it could well be, that makes sense to me. If that's what it was, like... <laughs> the, the the laws of the game are the laws of the game, surely. Like, you well, keep exactly. it 11 versus 11, but, you know, if a guy commits a red card offense and then a yellow card offense on top of that and only gets one yellow card, you know, I mean, do you think the same leniency would have been shown to Jorginho, for example, if he had, you know, tugged back, for example, you know, a player who was running past him or made a slightly mistimed challenge? I'm not convinced that Arsenal would have got the benefit of the doubt in the way that, that Manchester City did. And look, you know, we'll never know and all the rest of it, but we have plenty of experience as Arsenal fans of decisions, you know, soft decisions being given against us. Look at Tommy Asu's red card earlier in the season, a perfect example of that. You know, I just, I just don't believe that if Jorginho already on a yellow card had lunged through the air and put his studs on the ankle of Bernardo Silva or somebody that the second yellow card wouldn't have come out in a heartbeat. I just don't believe it. Yeah, I, I, I sort of share that. And I, I was convinced that was how the game was going to go. You know, that Jorginho <laughs> would inevitably be sent off. Or Kovacic scores a goal or makes yeah, an assist yeah, or something. It just yeah. felt like Sod's Law, that's what would happen. I mean, here's the thing. I think there is an explanation as well, that doesn't necessarily have to involve a big brown envelope full of cash, um, which is that referees, like all human beings, carry unconscious biases. And I think often the best team gets the kindest referee. You know, I think Man City have a very strong perception. uh, And I wonder if that has kind of influence on how officials officiate against them. Uh, I certainly seem to see them get away with a lot of like niggly fouls that should be yellow cards but aren't. Um, I do wonder if that bit of unconscious bias is in there. Um, Maybe. I prefer that explanation to conscious bias. Well, sure, sure. But I mean, you know, there's unconscious bias or conscious bias and then there is just failing to do your job properly. And I think there's a very good case to be made now that if we are in the era of VAR, if we are going to use technology... Uh, to try and get more decisions right, then VAR should be able to look at second yellow card offences or yellow card offences. You know what I mean? That that should be able to come back to the referee and say, hey, you know what? He's He deserves a second yellow card there. Because yeah. I don't know how any any official trained to the highest level, in inverted commas, uh, uh, in the Premier League, could look at that second challenge and not think, well, that's a very obvious second yellow card. Maybe the ref didn't see it, but I can help him out here and just have a word in his ear and say, look, go have a look again. I mean, why- Well, I'm sure they'll line up on television this week to explain to us why it's not. Well, the thing is, we won the game, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that's the difference between us and Liverpool in, in their situation. You know, we, we won the game. Uh, and it, it's a blessing because it means uh, it means that we don't necessarily have to uh, spend as much time about it as we undoubtedly would had we not. And also, it's a thrill to win the game 
in those circumstances, you know, mm. when it feels like it's against you, when it feels like the odds are sort of stacked up in that way, to win nonetheless is particularly enjoyable. I agree. I agree. I did, you know, fear that this thing was going to come back and bite us in the arse, you know, because that's just the way football works sometimes. But what did you make of the second half? Obviously, there was a change from an Arsenal perspective. Leandro Trossard picked up an injury and Gabriel Martinelli, who, you know, was only just back in the squad after telling Mikel Arteta, I'll be there, I'll be there, I'll be there. He was there and was stripped and ready to go as soon as he saw that Trossard was injured. I quite yeah. like that. Um, but he he made us more dangerous, I think. And again, it wasn't a half where there were lots of chances. It wasn't end-to-end stuff in any uh, in any way. You know, it was a, a very, it was like a sort of war of attrition, wasn't it? It was like, we'll get some territory, we'll press a bit, we'll see what we can do. Neither team particularly incisive in the final third. But Martinelli, when he came on, made us more dangerous. There was a, a very early whipped cross, and then there was a left-footed shot that he got on target um, and just gave City something to think about down that left-hand side. I think he, what he brings is a bit of chaos in a fixture that increasingly seems to be about the elimination of chaos. Um I think that, you know, the analogy of the chess match is frequently used whenever Pep comes up against Arteta, but I, I did think it was quite apt on this occasion. I feel like these games are going into the area of sort of risk management. You know, there's a... City started arguably with four centre-backs on the pitch. Arsenal finished potentially with four centre-backs on the pitch. Mm. They are becoming more physical. They are becoming more um, about off the ball work as well as on the ball work, they're becoming relatively low on opportunities. And I think where Arsenal have improved is their capacity to to live in these games with Man City, which, you know, we couldn't do a few years ago. Now we can, you look at the community shield, we stay right in it. You know, we're in the fight until the last minute and we get the break. Same here. It was tight. No one wanted to give anything away. No one wanted there to be a reason they lost. Mm. Um, but I thought the introduction of Martinelli was kind of the first time that somebody rolled the dice, you know, and said, you know, I know it was enforced by an injury, but by his nature, he just brings that slight unpredictability that I think kind of threw something into the, the formula um, of this game. It, yeah. was, it was really sort of a fascinating arm wrestle to watch. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't hugely eventful, but I thought it was really interesting because yeah. there were things that City did differently in the second half as well. There was a period where they pushed uh, Silva further forward and they started to press higher up the pitch, you know, compared to what they were doing in the first half. Yeah. Um, and I thought we dealt with it pretty well you know there wasn't a great deal going on they had a couple of corners didn't they um yeah and that was sort of it and then they or pep pulled the trigger first in terms of substitutions with stones Doku, and nunez coming on for uh, rico lewis kovacic and, and alvarez and i thought oh you know what? we'll probably see tommy asu here now in a few minutes and Jorginho's on a, a yellow get 20 minutes out of Thomas Partey. Lo and behold, that's what Mikel Arteta did with his changes. It was Partey, Havertz, and Tommy Asu on for Jorginho, Zinchenko, and, and, and Ketia. And then you're in this sort of 
phase of the game where I think both teams were, like from an Arsenal point of view, what would you have thought if we had said, right, it's nil-nil after 75 minutes, we're going to open up a bit, we're going to really go for it to try and win this game, or would you, given the context of this fixture and how how many times we've lost to Man City, would you know, would a point have been considered progress of sorts, even if it's not the result we wanted and thankfully not the result that we got, but it was that sort of thing, wasn't it, where we weren't going to throw it away for trying to win it, even if we were going to try and, you know, fashion something. It wasn't like hell for leather and neither was it that way from Manchester City either. Yeah, I think that both sides would have been pretty content had this played out to be a nil-nil draw. Um, I think it would have suited everyone to an extent. I think the context of this game is really important. If you think about our games against City last season, the stakes were so different. City almost had to win them, you know, to close the gap and close us Mm. down. And that informed the way they played and it informed the way we approached it psychologically as well. This game coming so much earlier in the season, the gap being smaller, it not being framed in the context of a title race yet, um, I think made it the case that both sides would have looked at it and thought, well, if we keep our points difference as it is, if we come away with a draw here, that's absolutely fine. And... Uh, I don't think anyone was going to go hell for leather. It was going to take a magic moment or Mm. a bit of luck to prove the difference. And Arsenal got it. But I I don't want that to take away from how impressive what Arsenal did for the 80, whatever it was, 80 odd minutes up until that moment, because they contained a sensational football team a team who are probably the best in the world, certainly the best mm. in the world, I'd say, and limited them to very, very, very little. And it's been a long time since I think you could say of an Arsenal team uh, that they were capable of that. Yeah, I mean, so much about what we do is focused on players like Saka, like Martinelli, like Jesus. Uh, Martin Odegaard, you know, these these guys who are sort of the, they're emblematic of the football we all want Arsenal to play, right? Yeah, and they're the, the, the end product guys. Exactly. They're the guys on the score sheet. They're the guys we see the pictures of celebrating. Yeah. You know, we know what they contribute. But I think this was a, a performance and a result that was built on incredible defensive work from Arsenal. Mm-hmm. I think both fullbacks were excellent. Ben White, really good. Zinchenko, good. The center halves, I mean, Saliba and Gabriel is right up there with the best uh, central defensive partnership in the Premier League, maybe even European football. Like the, the tone was set really early on. Like the first challenge that Saliba and Holland competed for, Saliba monstered him. I think he left him on the ground. It's just an aerial, and he left him on the ground. There was that brilliant moment where City looked like they were going to break. Saliba 
runs across with Haaland and just bounces him into the ground. And, you know, Haaland is six foot four and extremely quick and extremely strong, as we know. And throughout this game, those moments where we had to be strong, we were so strong at the back. Both of these guys were were outstanding. Just Gabriel as well. I know he doesn't maybe get as many flowers as Saliba deserves every single one that he gets for yesterday. Some great clearances, really good on the ball as well. I mean, Saliba, 97% pass completion with 70-odd passes. You know, playing out from the back against Manchester City? Yeah. Come yeah. on. You know, it's it's unbelievable. I think, you know, that back four with Raya in the end and also Declan Rice in midfield gave us the platform to completely control slash negate Manchester City from an attacking perspective. And very, very few teams ever do that to Man City. Like they have their off days, but very often those off days are them being profligate up front. Like there was a game, wasn't there, against Nottingham Forest last season where Holland missed about seven chances. He should have scored, you know, and, and Forrest nicked something from the game. But very few teams control and contain Manchester City in the way that we did yesterday. And I think those guys, and, you know, not just those guys, because the organization, the discipline, the positional discipline you need to to play that way is dependent on everybody, not just your defenders. But I think those defenders stood up to everything that Manchester City tried to throw at us and and did so, um, I'm not going to say with ease because they had to work very hard, but they did so with just pure quality and and professionalism all the way through. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I thought to a man, they were excellent. Um, I think if you look at Zinchenko's defensive numbers in the last couple of games, you, you might be a bit surprised. I think, you know, he's he's really contributing on that side of his game. Um, John McKenzie, who does works for TIFO and mm. does stuff for the Athletic, he watches a lot of football. Right, it's literally his job from a tactical perspective, and he says that he believes Arsenal are currently the best out of possession team in Europe, mm. uh, which I think is fascinating, and I think is kind of the story of Arsenal's season. You know, what did they do in the summer? They spent £100 million on Declan Rice, maybe the best out-of-possession midfielder in the Premier League. I mean, look, he's not too bad in possession either, but out-of-possession is <laughs> just sensational. Um, and I think the fact that we are being talked about in those terms is indicative of the structure Mikel Arteta has built. You know, we have a lot of conversations about David Raya and Aaron Ramsdale at the moment, but we don't talk about a lot of saves. Because we don't allow a lot of shots. That's true, actually. And if you go back to, you know, say the Everton game uh, a month or so ago now, clean sheet, PSV, clean sheet, mm. Brentford in the cup, changed the goalkeeper, still a clean sheet, Bournemouth, clean sheet, uh, City, clean sheet. We've really started putting together good defensive, solid performances at this point in time. Even if you look at the defeat in France, for example, it took two absolute worldy finishes. They barely had another chance in the game. And Arsenal have become very, very secure and very, very solid. Mm. It's a triumph of coaching, of concentration, of physicality. Um, 
And I think nothing will illustrate that better than a game in which Erling Haaland doesn't manage a single shot. Yeah, only the, only the second time that's happened since he joined Manchester City, apparently. Yeah, and I've got a feeling the, the other might have been the Community Shield. But yeah, it, we shackled him brilliantly. Mm. We shackled them brilliantly. Um, and, and it's unusual. It's unusual for us as Arsenal fans to be sitting here really like lauding that out of possession stuff, that defensive side of the game. But that is what we will have to do if mm. we are to win this league, a lot more of that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I, it, it was, it's nervy sometimes watching and because you're always more comfortable when it's your own side with the ball, your own side with the territory. But that triangle of kind of Saliba, Gabrielle, Rice just brings so much more security than we've had previously. Um, yeah, I thought, I thought from a defensive perspective we were excellent so far so far this season in all competitions arsenal defenders have blocked 36 attempts on goal yeah and i think that plays into what you were saying about the goalkeepers not having to make too many saves um that there is a, a sort of commitment to the defending and, and all the rest of it that's that's just so impressive uh let's talk about the goal then all four substitutes involved incredible the, a manager's dream <laughs> The Mikel Arteta substitute conversation is one that we've had more than once. But on this occasion, uh, all four combining to score the winning goal against Manchester City. Interesting to note, remember that game that Mikel Arteta scored for Manchester or for Arsenal against Manchester City to win it late on? Yes. Remember that game in 2012 or 13 or something like mm -hmm. that? In the 86th minute. Wow. And in the 86th minute, Gabriel Martinelli scored... I mean, Tommy Asu, you know he's a player I really like. I love Tommy Asu. But he's on his left back, mm -hmm. left back. And Thomas Partey looks up and sees Tommy Asu making a run from where you would expect your left central midfielder to be, I guess. He makes a run into the penalty box. Partey finds him with a very good pass. He nods it down to Kai Havertz. Havertz knocks it back. Martin Ali comes onto it. And like you said, Nathan Ake, um, you know, gets in the way. It uh, What's the word? Wrong foots. Ederson goes into the back of the net and pandemonium, you know, breaks out. I'll ask you, or you can explain in a couple of minutes what the celebrations were like or what the noise was like. Um, but I mean, what a, what a, what an impact from the subs. And in some ways, you know, what, what Tommy Asu does is almost at odds with what we've just been talking about in the sense that, you know, the organization that you expect and the, the positional discipline you expect, you don't really expect your left back to make that run because Zinchenko, as much as he wanders around the pitch and all the rest of it, he doesn't make that run. No. So I don't know what, you know, was in Tommy Asu's head. He obviously saw some space and, and all the rest. I'm very glad he did it. I'm not being critical, but it's just it's just interesting, isn't it, that just something outside the confines of the the game plan can be the thing to open up uh, the opposition. Yeah, it's a high-stakes card game and, and someone plays a joker. I mean, no one would have anticipated Tommy Asu making that run. He kind of made the run that I imagine... Mikel Arteta wants Kai Havertz to make, you know, from yeah, the field yeah, 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 to yeah. the back post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Credit to Kai Havertz as well, who who did his part of it um, with a, a, a neat little layoff. And Martinelli 
takes the shot on because that's what he does. He takes shots. I think he had the most shots of any player in the game. He only came on at half time. Um and it comes off the back of comes off Ake's face and ends up in the net. I mean, the celebrations were well, as you can imagine, it mm. was I, I'm genuinely worried about the kind of uh, North London populations hearing in about 10, 20 years time, because that stadium is becoming absolutely deafening. It's increasingly common for me to leave with my ears ringing. Uh, uh, genuinely two people uh, I've seen uh, or, or I've spoken to mentioned exactly the same thing that their yeah. ears were ringing because of just how loud it was. I, I mean, I, because I have like tinnitus, I often, if I go to a gig, I wear like special earphones that like mm. <laughs> dampen down the sound. I'm going to have to start wearing them to games, sort of somewhat depressingly. Um, it, it is that loud. And yeah, it, it, the great things about these late goals is that it creates this kind of window between the goal and full time where the fans are just absolutely engaged. You know, mm. They're on their feet, kind of willing that whistle to come. And it's non-stop singing. It's non-stop noise. Um, it was another brilliant moment, another occasion where I felt so lucky to be part of it. And listen, over the last couple of years, we've had plenty of those. We've had plenty of those. Mm. What did you think of what we did after that? Because I have to say, I fucking loved it i yeah. loved the way that look we've seen arsenal score before and then immediately sit back particularly at this point in a game it's it's almost natural for a team to say okay we've scored and now there's only like four or five minutes left so we're going to sit and we're just going to defend and all the rest of it but i think the way that we managed that final four or five minutes was really impressive again really professional we wasted time in good ways like Raya delaying and delaying and delaying mm -hmm. before he picked the ball up I, I really enjoyed that Gabriel Jesus out on the right hand side the number of times not just in the final five minutes but throughout this game where he took the ball down under huge pressure from Gvardiol who's a uh, you know is a much bigger guy than him you know, his ability to take that high ball, control it with his back to goal and just retain possession was fantastic. And I think he did that really well in the in the last five, uh, five minutes as well, you know. So there was something very pleasing. I think it was almost like in the in the context of this game and this overall performance, I think that was almost like the perfect way for us to uh, to see out the game that that City were just not able to put any late pressure on us. And how often do you see it where game state makes such a such a difference to how the final few minutes of a game can play out where all of a sudden a team that's looking for a goal, you know, we've been on the other end of it as well, where we've been terrible and then, you know, you have that you have that thing where you're saying afterwards, well, why couldn't we play like that in the previous eighty five minutes or ninety minutes? We just did not let City get into it at all. I thought it was really mature from Arsenal. Uh, that's the word I would use yeah. and that's how I would describe the performance more generally. Um, and I think in a funny way, we kind of will learn more from it and take more from it than a game where we sort of blitz them early and, you know, one, two or three nil. Um, we really did lock into this battle with City mm. and this duel and, you know, we held our own and eventually it went our way. Um, 
I, I think an arm wrestle feels right for it. It was just, it was kind of exhausting. Um, it required so much concentration, but we got there. And I think massive, massive credit to the team. Uh, I think they all come out of it, you know, hopefully feeling fantastic. And what a way to go into an international break. Mm. You know, we're timing these big wins quite well <laughs> at this point in time. Look, we'll find out in due course, obviously, but what do you think this win means beyond like three points against a title rival, you know, a very, very uh, uh, big team. They've won it five out of the last six, all the rest of it. But I mean, is this the sort of performance and the sort of result that will instill a kind of belief and confidence in these players? Because it must be disheartening when you when you go toe-to-toe with Manchester City but keep getting beaten despite your best efforts, mm. despite your preparation, despite your um, organization and all the work that you do in the week up to one of these games and you, 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 know, you know how big a fixture it is. And, and let's not forget, I think players, big players and good players relish games like this. You know, they they really look forward to the big moments and the big games and, and the big opposition because that is the real test, right? But we've come out on the wrong side of it time and time and time again against Manchester City. And I don't mean to say that this is going to be, you know, the, this changes everything or anything like it. But I, I also feel like it should be something from which these players now go, okay, we know we can do it. We know we can beat this team. We've come close. We've had our moments. We've had some difficult moments as well. But I think as you as you look for a team to progress, and you talk about maturity and the way that this performance was mature, I think it was, like there are little steps that you take along the way and you, you plateau and then you take another little step and those steps probably get smaller and smaller the better you get. But this has to be another one of those, right? I think so. I think Mikel Arteta's demeanour post-game he was so delighted, you could tell. And it's not always evident quite how delighted he is, but I thought it was in his interviews and in his press conference. I think he knows this is a step his team needed to make. I think it's impossible, it's too early to talk about it in the context of a, a title race and what it might mean for the, the Premier League campaign. But I just think it will do exactly what you said, instill belief. Um and I suppose what I'd say is, do I think the, the bad record against Man City was a factor in our fixtures against them last season? Do I think it gave them more hope in the title race? Yes, mm. I think it did. So I think it's as much about what it might do to them as it is about what it might do to us. I think it, it's a moment where we can say, you know, it's a, you never really arrive as a team, I think, unless you are lifting a piece of silverware. But as there are lots of little steps, little, lots of little milestones to that point. Mm. And this was definitely one. Well, I don't know what more to say about it other than, you know, it, it feels like we've lifted some kind of psychological barrier or whatever it is. And the team, the fans, the manager, the staff, you know, I think this was the marker fixture. You know, it has to be the old master versus pupil uh, discourse is getting really fucking tired, isn't it? About, you know, it has been for a long time, but I think Arteta needed this as well. 
I think, I think he really needed that on a personal level, above and beyond what it means for the club and all the rest of it. I think for him, as a manager in uh, at this point in his career, he had to be able to uh, mastermind, maybe is not quite the right word, but he had to be able to demonstrate a learning from previous games against Manchester City. And I think between this one and the Community Shield, what we've seen is a manager who has learned like was it maybe a couple of seasons ago where he said you know we're going to go and we're going to play our game we're going to play the way we want to play at Manchester City I think we ended up being beaten 5-0 and maybe it was a game when Shaka was sent off and that has an impact on that as well but there is there is something to the the sort of pragmatism that he has uh had to adopt in order to get this result. Do you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying by this one? Like, I think that's admirable. Let's go and play our football. But if you're getting pulled apart, maybe you have to think about doing things in a different way. I think we have seen things being done in a different way. And yesterday, that translated into a huge win and three points. Yeah. And, and I would sort of make the case, this kind of is our game in some respects now. I think he's emphasised those facets of the team so strongly that we have got a slightly different identity this year. And I think this result as well, it's it's big vindication for the manager. I think this is a pressure season for Mikel Arteta mm. because of how close he came last year, because of the amount of money that he spent, because of some of the big calls he's made in the course of the summer. You know, he spent £100 million on, on a player. He signed a player from Chelsea who fan base pretty were unconvinced about. He's changed his very popular goalkeeper. He's made big calls in a high-pressure situation. And results like this are vindication mm -hmm. for him. And I think that's important. You know, the first audience you've got to please is your own fans. And this was a night where at full time and as I was leaving the ground that super Mick Arteta song was singing louder than ever well what a great day a great day for everybody involved and uh, you know it's uh, it's a lot of fun to beat a team like Manchester City uh, regardless of how you do it um, that feeling of, of sort of justice plus overdue um, made for a very heady cocktail of, of fun and enjoyment. And I'm sure a lot of people went out and have some sore heads this morning. So we let them go get a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or whatever it is when you're uh, listening to this. We will come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back to the Arsecast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member. On Patreon, I would like to go first, if you don't mind. By all means. And we had a couple of questions like this. Uh, just some guy on the Discord said, did you enjoy ex-Spuds Walker losing his shit at the end? And Mark Gooner, who's at Mark Gooner 90 on Twitter, says, goodly morning, men. He said that in capitals. So he really means it. He said, what did you make of Walker not shaking hands with Nicholas Yeover after the game? This is the same dickhead who mocked Zinchenko pushing and shoving the last time City beat us. He can give it out, but he can't take it. Man City well and truly rattled. Rattled is the word, I mm. think. They're not a team hugely accustomed to losing. Uh, and that's two league games in a row yeah. that they've lost for the first time in a long time. Um, and I think maybe Walker's reaction at full time was illustrative of that. I mean, <laughs> I'm glad that we're getting under their skin. It's about time and it's what we're going to need to do if we're eventually going to wrest this title out of their grip. Did you enjoy it? I imagine so. I did. I, I enjoyed the way Erling Haaland showed more fight against five foot uh, six Nicholas Yeover than he did against Gabrielle and Saliba all day. <laughs> Pick your battles there, Mr. Viking, you know? And look, I have a suspicion. I could be wrong here. I have a little suspicion that maybe when Nicholas Yeover put his hand out to shake with Kyle Walker, he might have said something, you oh, know? I think so. <laughs> but... Uh, it was fun to see them, you know, rattle like that. I know the old saying, you know, show me a, a good loser and I'll show you a loser and all the rest. But, uh, I mean, that that's fun. That's fun. Particularly when Kyle Walker was stealing about five or ten yards with every single throw in that he took, much to uh, Mikel Arteta's consternation on the sidelines. So, I guess, justice served there again, the yard yeah. stealer. And, um, you know, he got a bit back, so... What about this? I mean, that was a fun moment in the game, but this was also one. Red and White Sam says, what was going through Ben White's mind while we were 1-0 uh, up with minutes to go against a team that we haven't beaten since the Big Bang? And he decided to nutmeg while opening his body towards his own goal, a very fast and tricky winger. He was just being beautiful Ben. That's all he was doing. He wasn't thinking of it. It's just It just comes natural to him. Yeah. You Happy know? birthday to Ben White, by the way. Yeah, it was his birthday yesterday. There's a great picture as well with that Walker Holland Yover incident. I don't know if you've seen the picture where Ben White is just sort of in the background laughing. Just standing <laughs> there laughing at these grown men scuffling on the sidelines because they can't handle losing a game of football. Um I, mean, I did like, someone replied to the question, actually, Loris um, said he was thinking about his shopping list of stuff to buy on his way home. 
um, which I think is quite funny. But he, <laughs> yeah, he's he's just he's just great fun, Ben White. It just add it to the long list of great Ben White moments. Mm, I love him so much. He, he he has an incredible sort of. How did Arteta describe him in the build up to the game? A fighter, maybe. Yeah, a fighter. Yeah, because he was asked about Ben White, and I think the question was framed around him contract. not being in the England squad. I mean, ah. the contract thing, but there was also a discussion of like, why is he not in the England squad when he's playing this well and he's this good, et cetera, et cetera. And Arteta just completely, <laughs> completely ignored that aspect of the question because, you know, what what can he say at this point? Um, but yeah, he is a, he's just a great player. He is a really, really good player. And he went home and who knows what he did. Play Trivial Pursuit. Did not watch Match of the Day, I'm sure. Like the rest of us, I stayed up late to watch Match of the Day. And uh, yeah, oh man, he's just so much fun. He's so much fun, you know? And you need people like that. You need characters uh, in the game. And I think he is one of those. You know, the, there's a sort of identical kind of thing to many footballers or, or certainly to footballers when it comes to what they say publicly or how they behave on the pitch, you know, but he's mm-hmm. sort of out there on his own a little bit, isn't he? He is. He is. And I respect that. All right. Um, it's my question, isn't it? We had a number of questions like this um, that I should be able to find. Uh, okay. John Foster on the discord. A very, very goodly morning to you both. A few weeks ago, we put out training pictures, including Partey, even though he was injured, seemingly to throw United off the scent. This week, it was leaked that Saka was fit to start, and I noticed the training picks were very tightly cropped, so it was tricky to see who was there. We seem to have replaced the media team with PSYOPs. Is Arteta in communication with them about what they can and can't publish? Do they have briefings? Any idea how it all works? And Alistair Wood at Alleyboy82 says, Morning. On Friday, Mikel advised that Saka was in contention to play. On Saturday, it was leaked he was starting. And he even came off the team bus in pre-match gear. Mm-hmm. Given he didn't start, do you think he had a late setback? Or is the whole thing an Arteta ruse? Yeah, uh, there's precedent for that. I remember Thomas Partey, um, being injured, but being brought to the team hotel and arriving with the team on the coach mm. to kind of, you know, throw a shroud over what Arsenal's selection would be. I do know a bit about this. I, I would say that Mikel Arteta, or at least his staff, are acutely aware of what the club put out in the public domain about players' availability. And I think there is a um, a guiding hand, shall we say, or at least everyone's on the same page in terms of trying to obscure uh, as much as possible. So, mm. yeah, I don't think it's coincidence, those tightly cropped training pitches or Saka getting off the coach or Mikel Arteta kind of saying one thing in a press conference and something else turning out to be true. Um I think it's all part of that game of if this gives us 1% better chance, then we're going to do it. Um, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because, like, you know, as fans, we're kind of, we kind of expect uh, transparency from the manager, particularly on things like fitness. You know, mm. we're used to a manager sitting down and saying, well, this is who's available and this is who's not. Uh, and Arteta's not going to 
play that game uh, because he feels he needs to safeguard you know, the decisions that he's making from the opposition. Yeah. I mean, even Guardiola was at it before the game where he said, John Stones, no, can't play. In well, this there you game. go. He's not ready to play. And John Stones is, you know, on the bench and came off. Comes on. I, I do wonder if this might be become more prevalent across the Premier League. Surely. Um, particularly now that they, you know, managers are dealing with their teams being leaked on the internet with a frequency that never happened before. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the fantasy football culture or whether it's, you know, people who are ITK or people hanging around hotels or whatever it might be, you know, this emergence of team news hours and hours and sometimes, you know, the day before a game is not something that any manager would be keen to have out in the public domain. And I just wonder if in order to combat that, things like this will go on. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think there'll probably be internal steps taken as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I know of a couple of occasions where Mikel Arteta has waited to tell the team who's playing until pretty late, um, presumably in part to avoid things like these leaks. So it, it's it's part of, uh, it's, it's becoming part of the game. I think it is going to become more widespread. And as we said last week, in terms of sort of injury news directly from the club, or elsewhere, mm. we've got to take it all with a pinch of salt at this point in time. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, let's have another question. Um, Sam Aston says, do you know how much we bought Declan Rice for? I've forgotten. <laughs> Nobody has mentioned it since he's kicked a ball. That is surely the sign of an absolutely elite player. Yeah, I mean, there was a great, um, there was a Great bit in a piece on The Guardian this morning from Barney Roney, and he was talking about Declan Rice. He said, otherwise, it was Arteta's chief addition since the last time these two teams met who quietly but insistently nudged this game Arsenal's way. The £100 million midfielder who looked like a gamble early in the summer before all the midfielders became £100 million midfielders. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Um, look, the quality is is unquestionable we had more questions about him as well uh, john larkin on the discord last year you described zinchenko as the queen in a game of chess considering yesterday's game was described as a tactical game of chess between both teams what chess piece is declan rice because fucking hell what a performance um yeah well he's kind of I, 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 he's <laughs> kind of a bulldozer I don't know if that exists in chess, really. It's well, not, I know for a fact it doesn't. Monopoly, is that not one of the... Yeah. yeah. He, 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 he really has brought another level to this team. Whatever what? position he starts in as well. You know, he's he, he slightly altered where he's playing yesterday and was just as impactful. What has surprised you most about Declan Rice? I think his... I... I I think it is that that physical dimension. I think maybe I was sort of guilty of underestimating the size, speed, and stamina of him. Uh, I think maybe I I was guilty of something quite. I don't think of an English central midfield player. You know, historically they've been plodders, right? Mm. And he is a different breed. And I think I didn't necessarily realize the extent to which that was true what, what about you i have to say i think the technical quality he has mm-hmm. 
Yeah, because I, I, I feel like I was always aware of the size and the presence of him. He's a big guy. He wins a lot of balls in the air. Defensively, very good. You know, he's played center half as well. So you know his defensive instincts are good. Yeah. For me, it's the, the quickness of his feet, his decision-making. You know, I think there were moments in yesterday's game where he drove us forward really well in the final third and not for the first time this season as well. You know, and and you think about the way he played yesterday, the covering the ground. There was one amazing tackle, wasn't there, late in the second half where he just sort of came in, hooked a leg around, took the ball, got up and moved on. And it was, you know, dare I say it, it was Vieira-esque. You know, it was that kind of an action. And those are things that I think I was aware of and I knew. But his passing ability, his range, his calmness on the ball... That has surprised me, I have to say, uh, and in a really nice way because, uh, you know, I want him to be able to do all those defensive things. But, you know, you could see he could easily play six or he could easily play eight. And maybe he could play closer to the box as well because of how good he is on the ball. So, look, he's just been outstanding since he arrived. Really has. He's been such – he feels like the perfect player for what we needed. And obviously – that was part of the strategy and that's why they went so big on him and and why they uh, spent so much time trying to bring him in and all the rest but i think that decision and all that hard work that they did to to lay the groundwork for this signing was uh, you know based on all the things he could bring to the team and uh, you know we're seeing all of it in in these performances so far this season and i'm sure he's feeling very good about his choice this morning yeah which is nice. It is. Which is nice. Um, go on, what have you got? What have I got? I have got this one from, oh, I just thought this was quite funny, from Jinvuk, who's on the Discord. Um, he said, are you worried about Saliba re-aggravating his back injury after he had to carry the weight of Holland in his pocket all afternoon? I did, <laughs> I did like that. Well, he's having the international break-off. Yes, of he is. Uh, I saw some talk that uh, England are expecting Bakayo Saka to report for duty. Don't like that. You know? No, I, I guess they want to have a look at him at St. George's Park. but Just take our word for it, you fuckers. The problem is, no, as we've just explained, no one can take <laughs> Mikelata's word for anything anymore when it comes to injuries. So maybe we shouldn't uh, blame England for wanting to have a look at them themselves. Maybe, um, but like when Saka's fit or even vaguely approaching fit, he plays. You know, for Saka to miss a game should be all the evidence England need that he's not ready and not right. So... Uh, yeah, get your hands off. Uh, okay, how about this one uh, from Bimrajka Rohan on the Discord? Preseason, if hypothetically you had done the Predictatron thing, where would our current points tally lie against your predictions? I feel like this is the best outcome we could have had, possibly, or I feel this is the best outcome we could have had after eight games, given our fixtures. I think that's fair. I think... Our perception is maybe a bit skewed by frustration at games we should have won that we didn't, you know, um, the North Island derby, chiefly among them, uh, Fulham being another. Mm. But I think if we'd sat down and done our predictions, we probably would have looked at, you know, the City game, a trip to Goodison, uh, a trip to Palace, and we probably would have come out with roughly... You know, I think we would have been very happy with 20 points from eight games. Yeah, we would have said Man City, 
draw, right? I don't think we would have yeah. predicted a win, but I think we would have said draw. There are a couple of other games, you know, Manchester United as well. So, yeah. We're I think- doing very well. Unbeaten as well. There is another team unbeaten in the Premier League. I, Who? There was, a, I don't know. <laughs> a few, they don't really count, I think. Never heard of them. There were a few fans um, as we left the stadium last night singing like, as we just beaten City, we are top of the league. You said we are top of the And sort of someone had to put an arm on them and be like, we're actually not top of the league but let's not talk about it kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think six wins from eight is very, very respectable. Mm. And listen, look at that goals against column, six goals conceded, the best in the league along with Man City. I do think that that is the difference this year. I think that is the the, the ch- shift in emphasis. Mm. And I think it'll stand us in good stead. Yeah, I think that would have been, you know, 20 points and unbeaten would have been maybe at the high end of what I would have predicted. Um, or, you know, yeah, the best possible outcome from the, the fixtures. And look, we've dropped a few points, but it is, I think it is also just important that we have gone into this interlull with a big win. And, uh, you know, as far as I can see, I'm just looking at the league table here. We are actually top. I don't see... <laughs> Don't see any other team, Man City. Second. Don't scroll up, whatever you do. No. Don't scroll up. No. Um, what about this from Magnus? Magnus Holmberg. Havertz with the assist playing as centre forward. Might Arteta need to think again about how and where he uses him going forward? Yeah, maybe. You know, I, I do think for these big games, the, the Partey Rice Odegaard midfield is basically the best that we've got. And Jorginho Rice. Odegaard was the closest analogue we had, you know, based on fitness issues and everything yesterday. And that means no place for Kai Havertz in in midfield. Um, There might be games where that becomes his thing, but I think maybe the bigger conversation is what is the next best option we have up front if Jesus is playing out wide? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's an interesting discussion when it comes to Havertz and, and, and Kedia. Uh, you know, I like Eddie. He works hard. But, you know, if you're being, as we said a few weeks ago, if you're going to be ruthless with your squad and you're looking at areas that you can upgrade, you know, that that's the one that springs to mind first for me. I think Havertz gives you something a bit different, certainly in that position. He's not uh, as all action uh, as Eddie, but maybe he's, potentially got more end product in him in that role or maybe better at linking play with other players um so what was the question again i can't really remember but yeah does arteta need to rethink how he uses habits yeah yeah maybe but i think he also has plans for him in midfield uh, as well i think that's part of why he brought him in and i don't think we will go to the end of this season and not see him in that position again. But I think it's up to, not up to him, but I think he's got to be more effective in that role for people to get more comfortable with it, you know? I think so, yeah. And I think he he has looked more comfortable uh, up top uh, when we've seen him there. And a nice moment for him yesterday to have that contribution to Mm. the goal. I think it'll do him the world of good, you know? I think it's all very well putting a penalty away when it's sort of put on a plate for you. And yeah, I think this he'll feel like, you know, 
A pro- I don't know. It's, it's different. A know? proper it's open different. play contribution, if you like. Open play contribution yeah. in a really big game, mm. in a critical moment. I think you'll take more encouragement from this in some respects. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like him. Up top, I think you know we all look at the squad and we say, "Oh, we need something a bit different." You know, we could do with someone who's six foot four and can head the ball and hold the ball up. And I'm like, we, "We've got a guy. We have got a guy." Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are times and situations which will suit him in that respect. Uh, is it your question? No, no, it's mine. Okay. Um, Paddy on the Discord says, Morning, lads. We all know Kovacic should have been sent off for two yellow card offences. This morning, are you, like me, glad that he wasn't? Otherwise, the victory might be tarnished and people would say it was only against 10 men. Any thoughts? Yeah, I I think that's true. I think uh, there is a silver lining for Arsenal. And funnily enough, I remember that moment where he didn't get the red card and... You know, when you win a game, it's easy to sort of look back and through rose-tinted spectacles. But that first half was quite hairy at points. Mm. And we didn't, you know, offer a lot at the other end. Um, And it certainly felt like from a territorial perspective, City had the advantage. But sometimes those moments where it feels like things are going against you can really energise a stadium. And... There were a couple in that first half. Like one was, you know, Saliba out muscling Haaland. One was Eddie and Ketia charging back and winning a tackle mm. on the halfway line. But one was that moment as well with the red card not being shown. And it just felt like as a group of supporters and maybe slightly as a team, we dug in a little bit in that moment and turned that adversity into something, you know, sometimes that adversity, you don't want it. You wouldn't wish it upon yourself. Mm-hmm. You want the correct decisions to be made but you can use it. Um, and I think Arsenal did that a little bit yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I would be perfectly content to dismiss anyone who says, well, it was only against 10 men. It was like, well, fuck off. You know, some of their victories against us have come with us down to 10 men. You know, think of Gabrielle in that game on New Year's Day and uh, Shaka in that game that we mentioned. I mean, Shaka sent off in that game for much less than Kovacic did on that first challenge uh, on on Odegaard. Uh, so I'd be happy uh, as a fan to be able to just say, you know, go fuck yourselves, we won the game. But I do wonder if for the team, if we're looking for the benefit for the team and their confidence and their belief, et cetera, et cetera, if it might be useful to have won it against 10 rather than, or won it against 11 rather than 10. So, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've sort of done a lot of my questions, so okay. I'll, I'll hand over to you. Let's have a couple here, uh, just quickly to to sort of see us out. Um, Timorous me on the Discord. Goodly morning, gents. I know we all love Martin Alley and appreciate him, but do you think he's been underappreciated because he sort of existed in Saka's shadow? And do you think that performance with Saka out will help everybody take stock of just how crucial Martin Alley is to our success? Uh, underappreciated. I think it's tricky, right? Saka is so idolised. He's English. He's an academy player. And that is difficult to compete with. Um, maybe, maybe he has suffered a little bit by comparison, but I, I don't get the sense that there's a shortage of love for Martinelli. Oh, no. I, I think he's, you know, we all know how good he is. And actually... I think we speak about them as a pair 
a lot. You know, we talk about Saka and Martinelli from a tactical perspective. And I think in terms of their profile within the group, um, I think Saka is kind of out there on his own as the golden boy. Uh, but Martinelli's not that far behind. And I think he is cherished at Arsenal and he loves it at Arsenal and has been very, very open about that. And as I say, I think his introduction was absolutely critical. I remember the first thing he did in the second half, got to the byline, sort of uh, cut back, whipped a ball in. Uh, I think it evaded everyone, went out of the far post, turned around, you know, gave it some to the crowd, got people off their feet. It's a big moment, you know. It's mm. a moment where he said, this isn't a game that we're just going to let play out. We're going to have some agency. We're going to pose a threat. We're going to try and make things happen. And that's what he does. Mm. Um I think we I think we're still we we certainly still see the best of him this season I think. Uh I think we want to get him in goal scoring positions more frequently than we do. I think we want to try and have him spend a bit less time on the touchline and a bit more time getting into areas where he can take those shots as he did yesterday. Mm-hmm. But um I, I, yeah, listen, I, I think he's loved at Arsenal. I think he really is. No, 100%. Uh, you know, and, and we've talked a lot about the collective and we've talked a lot about how important everyone's role is, but it, it feels to me like so much of what we want to do as uh, an attacking team involves Saka and Martinelli. The way that, you know, if you've got two wingers who scare the absolute shit out of the opposition, that leaves, well, the reason they scare the shit out of them is because they're really just so good. Um, that can see teams double up, and if you can, if you can move the ball, that leaves space somewhere else. You know, these two guys, I think, are, are absolutely crucial. If we are to go on and properly compete for this title, and hopefully, you know, if we can win this title, I think these two guys, if they stay fit and and play most of the games, our chances of doing that are, are increased than with the other options we have in those positions. As good as Jesus was in in. Uh, in the Saka position yesterday, as much as Trossard has contributed since he joined from Brighton, you know, he's just a very, very different player from Martinelli. So I think these two guys are, are just fundamental to the way Arteta wants his team to play. So fingers crossed they can get a nice rest over the course of the um, over the interlull and uh, yeah. come I, back I, firing. And the other thing to say about them is... You know, we, we talk a lot about Arsenal spending money, £100 million on Declan Rice. You know, a lot of money has been <clears throat> invested in this group. But they are the kind of miracle in that they didn't <laughs> cost us very yeah. much at all. And probably in the part of the pitch where players carry the heaviest transfer fees, mm -hmm. the amount of money that they've saved, I'm not sure, even with the kind of spending that Arsenal have done in the last few years, that we could have afforded to buy two players of this calibre. Um, it certainly would have hindered our spending in other areas. Mm. And that is the sort of great miracle, really, that I think en enables us to compete at this top level, that we have, alongside the transfer business that we've done you know, for significant money, had these two stars emerge. Yeah. You've cost next to nothing. Yeah, great point. Okay, final one from Rob Hack on the Discord. With Tierney now gone and Arsenal in the Champions League, it is surely time to update the words of the we've got Super Mick Arteta chant. What should the <laughs> modified version be? James, I'll let you take this one because you're in the stadium here and that ringing out. Is it, are there changes around you when people are singing it? 
Good question. I seem to remember last year that towards the end of the season, there was a change of the Champions League section. Mm. Um, but I forget exactly what it was. Like maybe it was Arsenal going to win the Champions League or something. Listen, I, I, I think it should be Gabby at the back, Gabby in attack. I just think... Uh, Simple, to the point. Exactly. It works, you know, you know uh, if Jesus is out, Martinelli's in, it still works. Um, exactly. So you, you get, you've got, you hedge your bets a bit there. You've got two forwards it could apply to. You've got a centre-half who should not be dropped again anytime soon or <laughs> rotated out or left out for tactical, tactical reasons. reasons. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, I think he's made a mockery of that really since he's come back into yeah. the side. Um, so I think I'd go Gabby at the back, Gabby in attack, Arsenal going to win the Champions League. What about Willie at the back? Willie at the back is an option. Mm -hmm. It's occurred to me. Um, but, and Willie's a fun word to say, of course. Like Mickey. Like Mickey, yeah. Um, so I don't know. Let's put it to the listeners. What would you go for, Willie? Yeah, I think Willie. You know? Willie at the back, Gabby in attack. Yeah. Mickey. <laughs> Willie at the back, Mickey in attack. <laughs> Still time. Bring me Kazarian back. Yeah. Anyway, look, the the hidden songbirds, the ones who make these things happen from their from their lairs, their songwriting yeah. lairs, the, the Lennon Sky McCartney. Castles, yeah. Where they live. Pass down the songs. They'll figure it out. Stone tablets. They'll figure it out. Well, look, what a good way to go into the interlull, and um, we will try and keep you entertained throughout this uh, two-week period. We'll do some stuff for you over on Patreon as well, but I think we better leave it there. Get this podcast uh, podcast out for everybody to enjoy. Uh, thank you very much indeed, as always, for being with us. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed the fact that Manchester City lost and that Arsenal won. What more could you want? We'll catch you on the next one, folks. Until then. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.